Hello everyone, I hope you are well. I'm Carlos Carnicero Uravallen and I want to welcome you all to Future is Blue, a series of podcasts bringing together top experts from academia and think tanks to discuss the most pressing European economic and policy challenges of today. This is a Funkas Europe initiative and we hope we can bring new ideas for a more inspiring debate about Europe. Uh, so hello everyone, it's so exciting to, to be doing our first uh, joint podcast episode between Funkas and the Center for European Reform. And we have a great topic today because we have new forecasts uh, about the outlook of the world economy that was released very recently by the IMF. And um, let me welcome Sander Tordoir, who is a senior economist at the Center for European Reform. Sander, welcome. Hi, Carlos. Uh, it's great to be here with you. Excellent. And and you're you're talking to us from DC. Is that correct? That's correct. All right. So I'm I'm based in Brussels, and now we're gonna travel a bit to uh, further south to Madrid, where Raymond Torres is with us today. Hello, Raymond. Hello. Happy to join this new adventure with uh, Center for European Reform and Sander in particular. Excellent. And let me remind everyone that Raymond Torres is Funcas Europe director. So uh, let's get started. We just heard the latest news from the IMF and um, the fund said it expected the global economy to grow 3.2% between the end of the final quarter of 2022 and the end of the last quarter of this year, 2023. And that would mark a significant improvement on 2022 when the IMF uh, estimates the global economy grew only 1.9%. So... Sander, things are looking better than we thought back in 2022 when we were fearing so much for this 2023 year and things are 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 looking better. Uh, what is your first reaction to that? I, I think the outlook is, is less gloomy than the fund's October forecast. But I also think it's important to say it's not a sea change either. So they've slightly upgraded growth forecasts, uh, primarily due to pretty resilient consum consumers in the US and Europe and an easing of energy costs uh, also particularly in Europe and and a bit the big story globally is of course that China is reopening after they abandoned their zero covid policy uh, and the economy is reopening there um, and they're they're sounding from the fund side a little bit of a note of very cautious heavily caveated optimism uh, saying we could be at a turning point with sort of economic growth bottoming out and inflation starting its long decline uh, lower. Well, thank you, Sander. Um, Raimond, anything to add to this first reaction from, from Sander about the, the outlook? Yes, I agree that uh, this is uh, basically the outlook which is the, with the IMF is painting at the moment. I think the critical point here is the issue of inflation. Because inflation has been the, and especially it's the bad type of inflation in the sense, it's it reflects an increase in import prices, at least in the case of uh, areas like the eurozone, and therefore it acts as a tax on on purchasing power of uh, people in importing countries, and this has detracted purchasing power and therefore affected consumption, uh, which explains a very significant slowdown. But of course the projection now given the turn in energy markets and also the reopening of China, 
is that uh, you know energy energy markets are going to function differently and also with the reopening of China any final um, supply chain disruptions will also uh, be over at least that's the hope of the IMF which explains the projection the relatively sanguine projection for inflation of the IMF in turn facilitating the return of some purchasing power increases in the in the future at least in the second half of the year uh, that said, the risks are on the downside, and I think there, uh, quite clearly, the EIMF points in particular to the speed of reaction of monetary policy and the risk of uh, an indirect effect on financial markets as one, one particular risk. What are the other risks that we should take into account, Sander, when we, specifically when we look at the, the European economy broadly? What are the other main risks that can challenge this this latest uh, forecast yeah so i mean it's important to say that this is an interim update from the fund right so they don't provide much granular advice uh, for specific regions like europe or the u.s or china but if you read a bit between the lines it's clear that that they see the inflation battle as being far from over uh, and they they also strongly underline that the risk of not doing enough is still higher than the risk uh, uh, of doing too much. And in a way, they between the lines, they really single out the Eurozone and the ECB um, because they're pointing out that while headline inflation, so that's head inflation without uh, energy and, and food, so very sort of volatile price categories, if you strip that out and you look at core inflation, let's say in, in regular services, uh, to some extent in goods, that core inflation is, is projected to still be quite high for the next few years. In fact, for 2024, they expect that 80% of countries globally will have still higher headline and core inflation than the pre-pandemic average. And, and in that context, they particularly point out that the euro area still has negative real interest rates. So the ECB's policy rate is still uh, minus inflation a few years down the line, at least based on current uh, sort of expectations, is still a negative territory. Uh, and so the question for them is uh, is clearly to say, hey, Europe, you have to get a move on ECB. You have to keep raising rates to make sure that you're you're putting monetary policy in a, in a place where it's it's really acting as a as a drag on on demand and not so accommodative anymore. So that I think that's really f fodder and encouraging for the, the hawks on the ECB governing council um, who will see their hands strengthened to say we need to increase interest rates by another 0.5% and then another 0.5% in February and March, uh, which would put the ECB's rate from 2 to, to 3 in just a few months. So those waiting for um, a reverse trend in interest rates in the ECB for this 2023. So in other words, before 2024, we'll need to wait, as as you don't see a you don't see a you see further increases in the the following months. That would be my my hunch. Uh, I think the the hawks the hawks have it in the in the boardroom in Frankfurt, and the IMF is certainly not. Uh, giving them a narrative to make, make them think twice, at least for the next few months. I think once once we're sort of in April, May, the story could change a lot, right? Because then the question is, how much are these interest rates they've already taken hurting the consumers? 
businesses, to what extent is the economy in the Eurozone slowing, uh, and then the picture gets more murky. But for now, the, the IMF story is, uh, is really one of better be on the, on the cautious side and raise rates relatively quickly, uh, and particularly in the Eurozone, whereas, for example, in the US, interest rates are already in real positive territory, around 1%. And in the G20, uh, minus Turkey, which is, of course, embarking on a sort of wacky monetary policy experiment, uh, in the G20, real rates are even close to 2%, whereas in the Eurozone, they're at minus 0 0.5. So if you buy the IMF story, then the conclusion for the ECB side is clear. And then you're, you're totally spot on to say, if you if you were hoping for the ECB letting up, then you're probably hoping for the for the wrong thing. So, Raymond, interest rates are not likely going to decrease anytime soon in the in the in the eurozone. Yes, I believe that uh, it's true that probably the next two meetings of the ECB will see uh, increases in in interest rate by about a half a half a point each. It's more or less a consensus at the moment. However, I think the I mean it's it's important to um, remain data dependent, you know, uh, in the sense that uh, not to pre-announce too much in terms of what will happen in the next meetings for the entire year, uh, because there are many unknowns here. And I think uh, one has to observe what happens to credit, credit markets, for example. I mean, the, the usual, in a way, the usual effects of interest rates on the economy, which is, of course, to weaken credit growth and therefore affect demand, if you wish. Uh, and, and this, in turn, uh, will, will slow down the, the economy as a result, and uh, this in the hope that uh, inflation pressures will also be reduced. So that's, that's the typical channel. Uh, uh, then, of course, they, have, uh, expect, they try to influence expectations as well, uh, the ECB. But I think what is interesting in the IMF report is that they point to uh, yet another, another channel, and they, they, point, they point to the, the importance of being cautious. So even though it's true, uh, what Sandor says that uh, the you know in a way the, the implicit message of the IMF vis-à-vis -vis the ECB is uh, go ahead and increase interest rates further because inflation is still too strong. They also point to uh, some risks you know uh, that need to be monitored and uh, in particular in the non-bank financial sector, investment funds, pension funds, and so on, uh, which is a big unknown because we lack uh, a lot of information. The IMF lacks information. Everybody. Uh, seems to to be a, a little bit in the in a gray zone uh, for, for for you know what it's about 50% of the overall credit comes or, or financing of the economy comes from the non-bank financial system and and the IMF points to the risk of liquidity shortages there and therefore uh, at the same time as it uh, encourages in a way monetary policy to be sufficiently restrictive in order to you know turn down inflation. They also point to another risk, which is a financial risk. So I think it's not so easy for, for central banks to, to navigate this, this period. I think that's totally right what Raymond is saying. And what's interesting there is that the IMF, so, so on interest rates, which is one part of the central bank toolbox, the advice to Europe is pretty clear. But they're much more cautious, for example, on uh, on balance sheet reduction. So that's basically the stopping or even selling of uh, of as assets on the ECBs or other central banks uh, balance sheets because of the the financial risks that that Raymond was pointing to so so in that sense there's a bit of nuance also in the advice um, 
I need to ask. I'm tempted to ask you about the energy uh, crisis because you mentioned the different inflation situations inside the eurozone. They are quite different, um, and this also applies to the to the to the energy dependence on after what happened with the war in in Ukraine. And and is it a risk or or is it fairly under control? the energy crisis when we look at what happened and how much we were fearing the the, the, the the winter last year and now the impact seems to be relatively under control um, is this is this one of the main risks we should look at over the next months or do, do you think this is rather under control I think this is a bit the, the story of optimism for Europe uh, essentially the sort of dramatic scenarios of energy rationing acute shortages all of that has been avoided by now and and if you look at projections for for the next year um, it looks actually pretty optimistic um, particularly because Europe has been massively outperforming on energy savings there's been a strong effort to bring in uh, gas from from outside uh, Russia obviously and a lot of that has been quite successful uh, and so You also see that implicitly in the, in the IMF that that's that's the reason why they, for example, are upgrading uh, pretty significantly growth expectations for for Italy and Germany, who were very dependent on Russia Russian gas, and they they get amongst the highest sort of upgrades. Uh, and so there is a story of cautious optimism there. I don't think anybody would say we're fully out of the woods, but uh, it's it's looking uh, a lot a lot more. Um, uh, a lot better than a few months ago, for sure. A lot, a lot better, Raymond. This is not over, but this is under control. Am I right? Well, uh, <laughs> I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't entirely, I wouldn't say it's entirely under control in the sense that we still, of course, depend on a small number of suppliers, and then, and then, of course, there's all, there are always risks involved, and the, the geopolitical situation is also very complex, and so. Um, I, I think uh, what Sandra says is absolutely right that uh, the, the, the efforts to save on energy have been tremendous in Europe and this has been key together with the, the mild winter we had so far, you know, at least so far. Uh, this has played a certain role and uh, I mean, that, in that sense is a, good, is, a, is a good thing, but I would expect still a lot of volatility in energy, in energy markets. Uh, and uh, with still a question mark with, with respect to the next winter, in the sense that uh, you know countries will have to replenish their reserves. I know, for example, it's interesting in Germany that everybody is informed on a daily basis on the regarding the level of gas reserves, which shows in a way the awareness among public opinion of the of the importance of this issue, the critical importance of this issue, and of course the the risks which are which are involved. So I would say yes. I think I would be. I would tend to agree with the, um, in a way, the argument of the IMF that uh, uh, probably the worst of the crisis is over. It, but however, the level of prices is still very high. Uh, the in, with, with respect to the pre-pandemic situation, so at least in terms of gas prices, and so we're still talking about relatively uh, high prices, in which uh, still. Uh, entails an incentive to move with a, a different energy mix in Europe. Uh, before we before we close, I wanted to ask you. I think we need to to address this topic because I think the IMF is also saying that the UK is the only advanced economy that will enter into recession. 
uh, this year. So I wanted you both to touch on on this and and why why are what are the key things complicating so much the outlook for the the UK economy according to the IMF. Sander, what what are your thoughts on that? I mean, the UK is the real drama in this in this IMF projection. Uh, there's no other way of putting it. Uh, they're basically slashed uh, expectations for growth in the UK by almost one percent. Uh, which makes the UK the only advanced economy or large advanced economy where the IMF is, is projecting a, a contraction for the year. Uh, and what's happening there is basically a much tighter fiscal and monetary policy, much tighter financial conditions. Maybe some of that's still also the, the sort of runoff from the the totally misguided list trust uh, budget, which sort of uh, was a big shock for the, for the UK. Um, and also still high energy uh, retail prices weighing on household budgets. And those are meeting with longer standing issues that the UK has had, like extremely low investment, uh, also one of the lowest compared to its peers, uh, presumably also the effects of Brexit that are kicking in. I mean, the IMF doesn't explicitly say that, but there's a big debate raging in the UK and Europe on what are the costs of Brexit. And so a lot of research showing that the ero eroding effect on on small and medium-sized firms who are struggling to export to Europe, that that's really starting to bite. So all of that's coming together and making the UK um, somewhat vulnerable and, and really an outlier. But there's also maybe a second drama that I wanted to just quickly point to related to energy, uh, which is that the IMF has massively upgraded its growth projection for Russia. Uh, so Russia, the Russian economy will actually outperform the UK uh, for the year, uh, despite all the sanctions. Um, so they, they bumped it up by a whopping 2.6% uh, from projecting a strong contraction to a little bit of growth for the Russian economy. And, and the key reason, again, is energy. Um, so basically, the, the oil price cap that uh, the G7 imposed on Russian crude oil export volumes uh, it's probably just not going to really work, uh, in a sense. And that's by design, not accident, because the the level, the price level that they set is simply not low enough to really hurt Russia significantly. And, and that was because there was a lot of concern amongst the G7 in the US and also in Europe that um, there wouldn't be enough oil, that there would be massive disruptions in the oil market. And they feared, they feared the sort of electoral ramification of that. So Ru Russia performing better than the UK. I didn't. I, I honestly, I need to admit, I was not. I was not. I was not expecting this six months ago, and I'm, and I'm a bit. I'm a bit shocked today to to learn about this, Raymond. And India performing better than China, you know, which is another interesting side of the story. That uh, you know, India seems to be uh, coming up as uh, coming out of these projections as one of the success stories. Uh, and uh, and China, I mean, is is the, has been upgraded in the IMF projections. But there, I feel that maybe the IMF is a little bit optimistic, in the sense that China has its own problems to overcome. So I'm not too sure that uh, you know the, the the growth projections will will become true. And with, with respect to the UK, I would add to the the points Sandra mentioned is the question of credibility. The UK not only has to rebuild its growth potential, which requires investment, also immigration and so on, because they will need also more, 
more people from abroad and this has been disrupted uh, as a result of Brexit. But also in terms of the short-term management of the economy, the UK used to enjoy a very, uh, if you want, a, a credibility bonus vis-à-vis -vis many other advanced economies. And, and this appears to have been weakened with the least trust episode and perhaps also in terms of the Brexit management. Uh, and that's something also that will need to be rebuilt in the UK. I think that we, we need to we need to leave it here, but I think this was a this was a great conversation. We touched on so many so many topics that are included in the IMF latest uh, report, and it was uh, uh, fantastic to have you on board, uh, Sandor Tordoir. Let me remind everyone that you are senior economist at the Center for European Reform. Thank you for being with us. Uh, thank you, Carlos. Thank you, Raymond. This was a great discussion. Look forward to the next one. All right. Absolutely. And Raymond Torres, Funkajuro Director. Thanks a lot, Raymond. Thanks. I do enjoy the discussion. I hope we can discuss again, you know, maybe the next, the next projections. I'm sure there will be new surprises. I'm sure about that. <laughs> I'm sure there will be. All right. Take care, both of you. Bye-bye. Thank you all for joining. This was all for now. We will come back soon with more exciting speakers on Europe's economic and policy-related key debates. Future is Blue is a Funcas Europe initiative. I'm Carlos Carnicero Ravallen, and if you enjoyed this podcast, feel free to recommend it to others and share it on social media. Thank you all, and stay well.